0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 257, What Could Be More Trustworthy Than a Brother? Our last two episodes followed the events of the Third Crusade. For those not on Patreon, the Third Crusade was a modest success. King Richard of England helped the Latins take the ports of Acre and Jaffa, opening up a foothold for future expansion. Byzantium, as ever, came off badly in reports of the campaign. The difficulties which Frederick Barbarossa encountered in the Balkans would not be tolerated again, and plans were already afoot for a fourth crusade. Richard the Lionheart had also captured Cyprus on his way to the Holy Land. He'd sold it to his allies, who now refused to give it back to the Romans. This was a harbinger of things to come. The Latins were broadly in agreement that if the Byzantines didn't do more to aid the crusading movement, then they couldn't be trusted with strategically valuable provinces such as Cyprus. Since we've spent the last few episodes discussing the Crusades, let's just remind ourselves of when and where we are. Manuel Komnenos died in 1180. His cousin Andronicus then brutalised his way to the top and was overthrown in 1185. Isaac Angelos was swept to power and saw off the Norman threat, but was immediately hit with a Bulgarian rebellion that he struggled to put down. The Crusaders then passed through the Balkans in the summer of 1189. Today's episode is about the fall of Isaac Angelos and the rise of his brother Alexius. As ever, in times of crisis, the Romans don't band together, they tear each other apart. In a story as old as Romulus and Remus, one brother turned on the other. As soon as Barbarossa's army had crossed the horizon, Isaac sprang into action. He did almost everything right, but it still wasn't enough. Across the next two years, he opened up every diplomatic channel available to him, desperate to secure the future of the empire and his reign. He wrote to the Pope and other Latin princes to express his solidarity with the crusading movement. Then he began negotiations with the Sicilian Normans to prevent them from attacking the empire again. He offered his daughter to the son of the new ruler of Sicily, King Tancred. He then wrote to the leaders of Pisa and Genoa, offering to restore their trading privileges, which was now essential. Since the massacre which had accompanied Andronicus's rise to power, Pisan and Genoese captains had led piratical raids on the Aegean. With treaties back in place, this would hopefully stop. Isaac also wrote to the leaders of the Bulgarians, Serbians and King Bela of Hungary, trying to find a solution to the situation in the Balkans. Of course, this wasn't going to be achieved without military action, so Isaac sent out the army every year to try and force his enemy's hands. Soon after the Crusaders left, Isaac led the army north of the Hemus Mountains to tackle the Bulgarians in their backyard. But he found that they had established their rule firmly in their new domains. Despite sweeping through the countryside, the Romans couldn't capture any major fortress or town. Each was garrisoned by men who stayed loyal to their new Tsar. Meanwhile, the Cuman allies of the Bulgarians were busy raiding Thrace. Irritated, Isaac decided to march swiftly home, crossing through one of the mountain passes. This was a mistake. The Bulgarians were waiting for him in the Defile. Pelting the Romans with rocks from high above, the rebels inflicted nasty casualties on Isaac's men. The emperor made it out alive, but rumours of his death spread across Thrace. Isaac had to march home to secure his position, while the Bulgarians sacked several towns in his absence. The following year, Isaac reinforced the frontier and then marched west. He confronted the Serbs, whose army were on the Morava River. The Romans emerged victorious from the encounter, but Isaac knew he could not fight on two fronts at once. So he entered negotiations with their leader, Stefan Nemanja. The peace which followed acknowledged the expansion of the Serb state at Byzantium's expense. Isaac then marched north to meet with Bella of Hungary to ensure that the two great realms were on the same page when it came to the future of the northern Balkans. All this diplomatic and military activity seemed to do the trick because in 1192 a dispute broke out between the Bulgarian leaders Peter and Arsene. Though we aren't told this, modern scholars believe that the dispute was probably over a peace deal being negotiated with Isaac. Peter, the Tsar, was in favour, but Arsene, who was the senior general, was not, since this would put an end to the raids which had made him rich and powerful. His Cuman allies would drift away if they weren't able to attack the empire anymore. Everything seemed to be going Isaac's way. He had played things right trading on his reputation as the new Manuel, and his enemy's fears about the power of Constantinople. But this is where it all went wrong. Isaac ordered the army to march north and defeat Arsen in battle, but he did not lead them himself. Instead, he sent his cousin, Constantine Angelos, who did a good job of blocking Arsen's forces from raiding Thrace, but inevitably decided to use his position to make a bid for the throne. Here we go again. He had his troops hail him Vasilefs and marched south to Adrianople. Fortunately for Isaac, the commander there was loyal and refused to join the conspiracy. Constantine was seized and blinded. Unfortunately, this did not help with the Bulgarian rebellion. The Roman army disbanded in the wake of the failed coup, leaving the countryside wide open to arson, whose Cumans raided with impunity. The Roman state was hamstrung by Isaac's lack of legitimacy. Every time he got the army in a position to defeat the Bulgarians, someone would try to overthrow him. During this same period, six other usurpers made a claim on the purple, according to Coniates. There was a relative of Andronicus's and a descendant of Tatikios, both of whom lobbied for support at the capital, but were found out. Then two different men appeared in Anatolia, claiming to be Manuel's son, Alexios. One of them hired a bunch of Turks and raided the countryside to show off his power, while another official, also in Anatolia, declared independence before being captured. These uprisings also demonstrate various ways in which the Roman state was failing. At the capital, we wouldn't normally expect usurpers to spring up the way the descendants of famous men were doing. These people had no real support, hence why they were captured, with ease. But if you have no support amongst the aristocracy, and no soldiers to back you, then why on earth would you declare yourself emperor in the streets? The answer is that the streets were no longer firmly under imperial control. The centre of Constantinople was being run by those powerful local figures we talked about a few episodes ago. Businessmen with money and clout. Their ability to muster armies of ordinary people made them potential kingmakers. Since Isaac's elevation, a pattern had emerged, where potential usurpers would announce their intention to rule and then stand outside the Ahir Sophia, hoping to be swept into the palace on a wave of public support. Though none had succeeded yet, it was clearly perceived that such a thing could happen. Meanwhile, out in the provinces, the connection between local hierarchies and the capital seems to have broken down. Since Andronicus's reign of terror, provincial governors had come and gone with dizzying speed, and those who'd remained in place were terribly corrupt. With the central government in such a weak state, there was no sense that justice would be coming any time soon. So local power brokers, like those on the streets of Constantinople, began to look out for themselves. The Bulgarian uprising was essentially a provincial rebellion, not a national independence movement. Remember that Peter and Arson had come to Isaac initially to become more involved in the Byzantine military, not less. They just wanted a bigger share of the spoils on offer, and it's entirely possible that the right peace deal would have ended the uprising, even at this point. Meanwhile, as I mentioned, several people claimed to be Manuel's dead son over in Anatolia. Byzantine Anatolia must have felt very neglected at this point. The emperor hadn't visited since Manuel's day, and the border was wide open to Turkic raiding. This grasping for some element of Manuel's legitimacy was a cry for help, a cry for someone to seize power and bring a bit of the capital's attention to the ailing interior. Until Isaac could crush the Bulgarians and demonstrate the government's power, these problems would continue. In the wake of his cousin's revolt, Isaac redoubled his efforts to win that elusive victory. He brought troops over from Anatolia to reinforce his Balkan army, and they engaged the Cumans and Vlachs in a battle near Arcadiopolis in the summer of 1194. But the Romans suffered a nasty defeat. One wing of the army routed, leaving the other to be smashed by the enemy. It was a disaster which the elites around Isaac took very badly, and they began making plans to overthrow him. The next year, Isaac raised extra funds to hire more troops, and he got Bella of Hungary to agree to attack Bulgaria from the north. But it was all for naught. As Isaac waited for his army to assemble in Thrace, he left the camp to go hunting. While he was absent, the conspirators moved against him. They hailed his older brother Alexius as emperor and gathered the troops present to acclaim him. Isaac's servants ran out to find him to tell him what was going on. Angelos decided to ride back into camp with his sword drawn to scatter the conspirators as he had Andronicus's henchmen ten years earlier. But when he heard the soldiers shouting for his brother, he knew the game was up. Isaac rode away from camp as fast as he could, but his brother's agents tracked him down a few hours later and blinded him. Isaac was 39 years old and had ruled the empire for ten years. In a sign of the disasters to come, this would not be the last time that he ruled Romania. Coniates is very critical of Isaac, basically describing him as unfit for office because of a lack of seriousness and firmness of purpose. But Coniates' judgment is suspect because of his bitterness about the fall of Constantinople in 1204. He knew Isaac very well, working closely with him for most of his reign, so he's probably right in a broad sense. Isaac received no training to be Vasilevs. A more serious character, preferably a soldier, would have been better for the empire. But to blame Isaac for not taking the job seriously enough, seems like an attempt to apportion personal blame to someone who was simply reacting to the difficult circumstances he found himself in. What Isaac faced was a series of dilemmas. There were no easy answers to any of them. If he was brutal, like Andronicus, the people would turn on him. If he was too generous, as Manuel was at times, his nobles would take advantage of him. Coniates accuses him of being inconsistent and paranoid, but given all the plots and coups he faced, why wouldn't he be? Coniartes criticises him for having too much fun at court and for lavishing money on buildings and charitable causes. But again, this sounds like a man trying to cultivate a popular image at home, which, given it was the people who swept him to power, was a sensible strategy. The details of Isaac's reign suggest he would have made a decent emperor in easier times. But what Byzantium needed at this moment was an excellent general, which Isaac plainly wasn't. If the elites who betrayed him had installed a hardened military man to save the state from disaster, then we might be more sympathetic to their cause. But they didn't. They elevated Alexius Angelos, Isaac's less capable, lazy older brother. Or at least, that's what Coniates tells us. This is where it becomes difficult to know how much to trust Nikitas. Again, he worked closely with Alexius, so we turn to him for insights into the new emperor's character. But as modern historians like Antony Caldellus point out, Coniates actively distorts his narrative to play down Alexius' efforts. Probably because Alexius will abandon Constantinople in its hour of need during the Fourth Crusade an act that Coniates found unforgivable. Looking back with deep sadness, Coniates identified this episode, brother turning on brother, as a key moment of decline and shame for the Romans. I'll quote this whole passage as it tells you plenty about our historian's perspective, as well as giving you an idea of why his prose is so highly regarded. In this manner, then, Isaac Angelos lost his throne and was divested of power with ease. He was deprived of his sight by those whom he had imagined led him by the hand as though they were his own eyes. For what could be closer and more trustworthy than a brother? And he, beloved, if water drowns us, then what shall we men drink? And if our limbs are armed against one another, How can they possibly work together so that we may live? But the healing art mixes from contrary bodies a salutary antidote. And some men have risen up against one another, disregarding the noble gifts of nature because of evil-mindedness and the love for greater glory. It is for this reason that the barbarian nations regard the Romans with contempt. This they reckoned to be the consequence of all the deplorable events which had gone before, by which administrations were constantly overthrown and one emperor replaced by another. There were those who withdrew from close friendships and forswore their old associations. They would say, If the brother is not safe, then what man is? And whenever certain individuals revealed their secret intentions to others, the latter, citing the example of recent events, suspected that their intimacy was contrived. As you can see, Coniates is painting a picture of a world falling to pieces, which, from his perspective, after the sack of Constantinople, makes sense. But we have to stay in the present tense in our narrative in order to understand events as best we can. By looking back with anger, we find our historian putting a negative slant on actions which may well have been entirely necessary. For example, after having his brother blinded, Alexius disbanded the army, leaving Thrace to be ravaged again by the Bulgarians. He returned home to the capital where he handed out all the money in the treasury to his supporters and to the crowds, and then he went ahead and granted any petition put in front of him. Tax-free lands for you? Pronoia lands for your friends? Legal settlements in your favour? Why not? He did all this, says Coniates, because he had no spine and wanted to get down to enjoying the luxuries of court. But these were the kinds of gifts that usurpers always hand out when they seize the throne, especially men who were elevated by a cabal of senior Byzantine nobles. Alexius III, Angelos, was born around 1153, making him about 42 when he became emperor. He was three years older than his brother Isaac. Like Isaac, he'd never really held an official or military post before hitting the big time. While Isaac was living in fear in Constantinople during Andronicus' reign, Alexius was a guest at various Muslim courts, including that of Saladin. He'd fled east with his father to escape Andronicus's wrath. When Isaac became emperor, he naturally had his brother recalled and given the highest court rank available. In fact, Coniates says that Isaac was especially kind to his older sibling because he was one of the few male members of his family left after Andronicus' purges. We don't really know anything about Alexius during his brother's time in power, No narrative of resentment or jealousy is mentioned. In fact, it's just possible that Alexius had no intention of moving against his brother, but that when he was invited to join the conspiracy, he was given little choice. As in, either you replace Isaac, or you'll be blinded as well. I'm not saying Alexius was unwilling, but we should be aware of the pressure these elite Byzantine families were under once the Game of Thrones got going. Alexius did leave Isaac's family unharmed and kept them under comfortable house arrest, and Coniartes says that Alexius felt very guilty about betraying his brother. Nikitas describes Alexius as very mild-mannered. Like his brother, he did not torture or enjoy cruelty, nor was he a terrible administrator, nor close to the opinion of others. In fact, Coniartes is fairly complimentary about his character, just very critical of his actions. The new Vasilevs suffered from gout, which made life in the saddle a rather painful experience at times, but as we'll see, that didn't stop him from campaigning. In fact, the easiest charge to dismiss is that of laziness. Alexius may not have been the tough-as-nailed general that the empire needed, but lazy he was not. The cabal of senior men who agitated for regime change are also identified by Coniates. They included Theodore Vranas, George Palialochos, John Petralifas, Constantine Raoul, and Manuel Cantacuzinos. This is something of a who's who of Comnenian associates. Theodore Vranas was the son of Alexius Vranas, who fought Isaac in a civil war a few episodes ago. Palialochos and Cantacuzinos were both descendants of Alexius Comnenos' generals, while Petralifas and Raoul as you might be able to tell, have Norman origins. Their ancestors took up Alexius's offers of service during the First Crusade. These were senior figures, men who might have tried to become emperor themselves, but who instead formed a conspiracy to try and reorganise the realm to their liking. It's a sign of how desperate things were becoming that these aristocratic families had been able to find common ground. It's interesting that they chose to elevate Isaac's brother, rather than selecting a man from a different family, or someone with more military experience. Presumably, in such a conspiracy, a compromise candidate is often popular, since he balances the competing interests of those involved. Choosing another Angelos may also have been an attempt to appease the crowds back in Constantinople, who, so far, had been loyal to Isaac, the man they elevated. It may also have helped that Alexius' wife was a woman of very high standing. A Euphrosine Ducaína Kamaterissa was a formidable woman whose family were very well connected throughout the bureaucracy and church. She proved her worth immediately by preventing a revolution back at the capital. When news reached the people that Isaac had been overthrown, many did take to the streets to show their displeasure. Predictably, a Komnenian aristocrat tried to present himself as an alternative emperor for the crowds to elevate. But Euphrosine swiftly took control of the great palace, sent troops to disperse the crowds, and then bribed her way into the Ahia Sophia, where the clergy obediently acclaimed Alexius as their new Vasilefs. This was just the sort of decisive action needed to prevent the situation from spiralling out of control. Going back to the conspirators for a moment, the fact that they didn't elevate a proven general shows that although Isaac's military failures had discredited him, it wasn't the empire's dire military situation that was their sole motivation. Instead, it was the feeling that they had been left out of Isaac's regime. Though he didn't hand out punishments as Andronicus had, Isaac had restricted real power to a close circle of trusted men. The expectation was that Alexius would expand this circle. In many ways, then, this was a purely selfish conspiracy, designed to benefit a few families at the top of the elite. And though it did little to change the empire's fortunes, it did have the effect of making Alexius' reign more secure than his brother's was, since many more members of the aristocracy now had a vested interest in its success. This new ruling coalition also encouraged Alexius to abandon his father's name, Angelos, and instead use one of his ancestral names, Komnenos. You may remember that Isaac and Alexius' grandfather had married one of Alexius Komnenos' daughters, it would become increasingly common from this point forward for men to choose a surname from their collective ancestors rather than just stick to a less prestigious name from their father's line. This was an inclusive move, since all these elites traced their descent from the Komnenoi, and hopefully it would make Alexius seem more legitimate. In theory, then, I should call our new leader Alexius Komnenos, which, for obvious reasons, I won't. I'll call him Alexius Angelos Komnenos, which is a mouthful, I know, but since another Alexius Angelos is going to become prominent in our story soon, you'll thank me later. Next time, we'll follow Alexius Angelos Komnenos's efforts to keep the Empire solvent. Before we go, though, here's a quick update on the career of Nikitas Koniati's. As you may recall, our historian had been promoted to be a provincial governor and close advisor to Isaac Angelos by the time of the Third Crusade, and his rapid rise continued, becoming essentially head of the bureaucracy by the time his patron was blinded. This was an exceptional career path, essentially going from under-secretary to the top of the civil service in just ten years. This elevation speaks to the skills and intelligence that Nikitas undoubtedly possessed, but he was also significantly assisted by the fact that his direct patron, Basil Kamateros, was very close to the Angeloi. Basil had been part of the original conspiracy against Andronicus, and he was also the brother of Euphrosine Ducaina Camaterissa, as in the new emperor's wife. This meant that Coniates could serve Isaac closely for years, before making a relatively smooth transition into Alexius' new regime. It was during this period that he began writing his history, and as you can see, he was extremely well placed to comment on recent events. He was about 40 years old at this time.